looks like we are going live. Yes, we are live, I think. Yep, we are live on Facebook and on YouTube. And we are here with Andy. Hello, Andy. Hi, Isaac. How's it going? Uh, I'm good. What you've been up to today so far? Thank you. It's it Sunday, was... so, you know, you've probably got a lot of things to do on Sunday. Do you know what? I've uh, binge watched on Netflix. I've not been in the mood for doing anything today. Uh, and... Rosemary, my partner, was wanting me to go swimming down at Portobello, and I thought, no, I'm just having an easy day. So, so, so that's today. So, so what you watched? Uh, the Last Kingdom. Ah, I haven't seen that yet. Oh, it's good. Uh, it, it's, well, Danish Vikings and everything, and lots of slaying people, but it's good. You should watch <laughs> it. You should watch it. Well, I, I, I'm banned from choosing any series because, uh, Joanna, we're always starting watching something and then Joanna, I'm getting bored after like first season mm. and, jo and Joanna, she has to finish all of them. So mm. then we are sitting and watching like eighth season of something and I'm like, no. Uh, well, don't start on The Last Kingdom because, well, Joanna could look like one of the Viking warriors in it, actually. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I'm sure you guys would love it. I will, I will, I will, I will check it, definitely. So <laughs> we've got a couple of people joining in now. Uh, so basically, for those who don't know my guest today, uh, this is Andrew Kirkland, Dr. Andrew Kirkland, and lec lecturer at University of Starling. Uh, when I check your um, Twitter account and I check the, can I just read from your Twitter account? Because it's, I found it. You can, you can. <laughs> because, yeah, so uh, there is an independent thinker in sport and problem solving rallies, a triathlon coach, a lecturer and a chartered scientist. Is that, mm. and, and reading this, it's completely not, not you. You know, tell me like, why tell me why i've just i you know when, when i've it's it's a completely different persona uh from what you read about you and then when you meet you in person you are you are completely different and and i just want to spend some some time now in this in this podcast just to just to dig deeper into into you into your coaching mm. obviously but also mm. like the, remember that we start meeting some time ago for for some training and and i said we need to meet and we need to chat Mm -hmm. A part of our sessions, because it stands out that we chat more during our session than we train. Mm. Uh, so yeah, and we we chat about different different topics during during our meetings. So I, I really want to get into it as well. All right, fire away then. Let's see where it takes us. <laughs> so so to start with, uh, tell me about your coaching. Uh, so you are a coach and you used to be a coach for British Cycling, but I will just give you just go ahead a couple of. Oh, about my coaching. I, I don't actually do much of it now, uh, mm -hmm. Isaac, but uh, I work with one athlete in particular. Uh, so Simone Mitchell, who's, she won the Ironman Wales last year. Mm -hmm. uh, very good professional athlete. So she takes lots of my time up uh, and I coach one or two other people on the side as well. But my, my focus is my d day job as a lecturer and sports coaching at Sterling mm -hmm. and how would I describe myself someone is that helps coaches be better coaches so I wear the formal lecture hat and deliver lectures and all these types of things mm -hmm. but I perceive myself as to be someone that helps coaches be better at what they do so I'm a coach of the coaches okay and how did you start it 
How did you end up with Simone being your athlete? Did, do you have any background in, in triathlon or how, how, this, how this happened? Yeah, well, my career, uh, you know, the moniker in Ironman, anything is possible. Anything is possible in it. Uh, so, so years and years ago, I can't even remember how long it is now. Uh, I, I did my first Ironman when most people hadn't even heard of the sport, and I did pretty well. Mm-hmm. Surprised lots of people. Uh, and actually, believe well, I've been putting myself down all my life. I've got a career that um, it, it wasn't even a career. I was working in a bank. Mm-hmm bored with it all, not fulfilled, struggling at work because I was half asleep all the time because it was up at 5am to be at the swimming pool for 6am and life revolved around sport. And uh, I met another coach, a guy called Darren Smith, who is a a pretty well-known coach within triathlon, certainly a few years ago, so worked with world champions, someone that's finished on the Olympic podium and so on. And Darren was head coach for triathlon Scotland at the time. Uh, And I said to Darren, listen, mate, I want to be a coach. And uh, I I thought I knew quite a lot back then. So we're, what, 15, 20 years ago. uh, And he started asking me questions. And he went, Andy, you know, well, he didn't exactly say it this way, but he said, you know nothing. <laughs> you you really don't know anything. Uh, and he said, I, I think you need to go and study uh, and go to university because uh, I was getting to 30. I, I hadn't done well at school uh, and ended up going to university to study sports science and coaching. And and. The, the journey has taken me through uh, doing my degree, doing a PhD, working with pro athletes, going into high-performance sport for a few years. Then I went to British Cycling, worked there for six years down in Manchester and coached development. Mm-hmm. And about five years ago now, I had enough of that and, and decided to or more worked really hard to get into academia. It was a real challenge without that deep academic background, but eventually got a lecturer role at the University of Stirling. But what's really important to me is, as a teacher is that my students have got to see me is absolutely credible. I, I don't want to be that lecturer that stands at, at, at the front of the lecture theatre or, or on a medium like this and talks about stuff that I don't do. Yes. Uh, I think it's really important that, A, I do the job that I'm teaching and that I'm damn good at it. And I lead by example by having a pretty good knowledge about coaching too. So so that's kind of my journey. Mm -hmm. And so you teaching uh, coaches how to teach. And what's, what's the biggest problem with coaching at this moment how when when you're getting someone like a group of 10 coaches what do they have in common that you thinking like uh, it could be a little bit better i think as a profession it's not really a profession so mm-hmm. anyone can call themselves a coach although you can go through a, a level of accreditation or do a national governing body course 
uh, which will take you four days. Mm-hmm. The reality is, though, what, what I do and some of the stuff I do with Simone requires the, the skill and expertise of, uh, I would probably say, a, a general practitioner doctor in which mm-hmm. I've got to understand physiology, psychology, uh, aerodynamics, working with other professionals, uh, the whole shebang, marketing, how to market uh, an athlete, uh the demands of life and everything on top of that as well. So understanding how people behave, why they behave the way they do. So uh, I I believe the biggest challenge in coaching is that people aren't professional enough. The the knowledge isn't as deep as it could be for what is a, a really challenging, difficult job. So are we talking about the depth of knowledge or are we talking more about like a, a spread knowledge on different different areas because it seems like we talk about this recently as well about you know mm. going deep down in let's say training picks and being a geek in the numbers but not knowing anything about psychology or something uh exactly no i would say the the great a bigger challenge is coaches believing they know more than they do. So uh, I think being humble is fine and recognizing the the limitations in your knowledge, not having all all the answers and being humble and recognizing you've not got all the answers. Uh, And the, the the journey I take coaches on is first of all to help them recognize what they don't know mm-hmm. and then take them on a journey to help them find out for themselves what's important, expose them to new ways of thinking, new ways of solving problems, uh, and different perspectives surrounding coaching. So mm-hmm. uh, we're all adults here. I'm guessing the audience is all adults as well. And we come with a life journey in which we've picked up our knowledge, our experience, uh, skills, ego, all those different things that influence how we behave with other people. Uh, and I think it's really important to recognize that in learning with others that everyone brings with them a wealth of experience, but some people bring too big an ego. Some believe they know far more than they do. So, so my job is to help others see what they don't know maybe bring the, those egos down and, and really help others be more effective problem solvers. Mm-hmm. So how people react to this? If, if, uh, if, if you tell them, listen, you don't know nothing. Uh, well, Isaac, it's the same as you. you. You might be seeing me in the gym doing exercises and be going, oh my goodness, uh, Andy, come on. And, and you'll have thoughts and feelings and emotions within in your head and you won't mm-hmm. necessarily articulate them. Uh, I think it's really important for me to be humble and recognize that those that I work with are at different stages of their journeys. Uh they see the world in a different way to me and I, I just want to pull them in a direction. So, mm-hmm. so it's uh, about allowing them to re- retain that credibility whilst exposing them to what they don't know. Uh, and it is being humble and it's being respectful and 
recognizing that I was actually that person probably 10 years ago as well that mm -hmm. believed, well, I've got a PhD in physiology and worked in a laboratory and I'm that boffin that can bore the hind legs off a donkey all day talking about training zones. Yeah. But, but the, the recognition as I've developed is that I've become not dismissive of that type of way of thinking, but I recognize mm -hmm. the limitations of it. So where I was previously on my journey, I thought I was better than I was. Uh, I didn't know what I didn't know either. So it, it's actually putting myself in the shoes of other people and saying, mm -hmm. well, I've probably experienced some of the things they're experiencing now. So, so let's be kind to them. So with your, with your relationship, going back to you as a coach, with your relationship with Simon, what is that? What is what's you bringing to the table? If if I ask her what she thinks about you, what what she would describe you like? Oh goodness! <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think the first thing she would probably say is Andy's a nice guy, and um, she said to me before. Uh, again, I'm not wholly open about these things, but uh, she likes having me as a coach in in, mm -hmm. in that. Uh, uh, that's the the best thing an athlete can say to you is I'm glad you've got me as your coach. Uh, that uh, w we've got a good relationship. It's relatively open, uh, and I think it's from my side anyway. It, it's it's a really uh, trusting relationship. That's that's fine. Like th what you describe is it's how I I would describe like my relationship with other people as well. If I, if I want to coach someone, it has to be this, this close. Because mm. I, I, the, the worst thing is when, the, in my opinion, uh, when the coach is like an autocrat who tells what to do and, and without really chatting with the other person about this, about the feelings and about ways of doing this. Mm. Uh, definitely. Uh, I, I think there's sometimes a time when you need to tell athletes what to do. Depending mm -hmm. on what level you're at, sometimes it's uh, get your finger out your bum and just get on with it. And sometimes uh, athletes want to be told what to do as well. So it's finding the right balance in which uh, there, there's times for me to be that autocratic coach. Mm -hmm. But naturally, I'm not that person. But I recognize that being autocratic, saying crack on, get on with it. This is what I expect of you. This is the line is really important in high performance sport. And in fact, being teaching undergraduate students as well, it's important to say, no, this is the standard that's expected. Come with me. Let's come up to the standard. Uh, it probably a little bit different to the, the personal training environment in which Yes, we want people to achieve their potential, uh, mm -hmm. but when there's performance outcomes or people's careers at stake, there there is a level that needs to be hit as well. So, so that's when the autocratic side mm -hmm. comes in, but hopefully done in a quite a nice way. <laughs> it's interesting what you said because I I always kind of had those two things like autocratic and and athlete center, and you, you it it was almost like for me that you have to choose which side you are. Uh, and and seems it's like on the continuum that you can basically pull mm. the right tools at any moment 
uh, not being the same all the time. Yes, I think the athlete-centered term is misunderstood. Okay. Uh, Athlete-centered is often seen as, uh, well, not an autocratic way of coaching. I I see it as uh, helping others achieve their potential. So it's not about me as a coach. It's about others achieving their potential. And there's multiple different ways of helping people do that, depending on their personalities, their likes, their dislikes, uh, the situation we're in. So, for example, in in a group class, if you're doing a, a group class, you don't want a debate with everyone at the time or everyone questioning everything. Uh, even when you've got that individual who is the questioner and saying, uh, Lesek, why are we doing this? Uh, so the the answer for me would be, I'll tell you after the class, let's have that chat after the class. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's, a, there's a time and a moment for the, the debate, the uh, questioning and all of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's picking that the moments uh, appropriately. That's, that's, yeah, that that's makes sense. You, you don't want to have the interruption during the class, but, but being open and, and allowing these people to ask questions at the end, it, that's super important, not just finishing session saying, that's it, I'm going. Just- yeah, that's the most important thing. Uh, I think uh, at the beginning of a class or an end of a class, just have, being available for that little chat and getting to know people and, uh, picking up on how how they've actually done in the session, how, how have they felt? Because we know that emotions and fear of doing things is probably the biggest barrier to learning. Mm-hmm. I was I was just before the, the hour chat, I was reading your blog about the Ironman Edinburgh, and you've been mm-hmm. talking a lot about the fear of, of open water swimming there in people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, when I teach, this is the biggest concern all people always have for the open water, that they are just basically afraid. Is there any tip for, from you uh, how to get them a little bit more, uh, how to make it easier for them getting into the water? I don't know if it's easier. I think I remember the first time I went open water swimming years ago uh, and uh I walked along this little, it was a, a, a Loch Gelly in Fife. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I walked along this little pier nonchalantly saying, what, what's the big fuss? It's just water and, and dived oh. in. Uh, and one of my mates had dived under the water and then grabbed my legs and pulled me under. And I'm, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think the the thing about getting in the water is to recognize how many people actually do it it, it, open water Mm -hmm. swimming has become really uh, popular and it's just realizing that it's just water it's probably safer sometimes than uh, the swimming pool Uh, I would say would you rather be getting in the sea or in a swimming pool full of uh, baby wee wee and all all plasters and everything like that sometimes the sea's a bit more attractive Uh, and I think if you go in gradually and and just feel the water and understand what's going to happen when you get in there and 
breathing nice and slowly, then it, it, it it's easier to do. And as soon as you do it the first time, the mm-hmm. second time becomes easier. The third time becomes much more easy. Uh, 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 and before you know it, you're you're someone like me who who will just get, well, not at the moment because it's really cold and I'm quite soft. I don't really like the cold water, but uh, I'm quite happy getting in the sea and, and going quite a swim. I'm pretty fearless, probably to the point of being not uh, fearful enough. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I think it's a gradual process. It's recognizing that the risks are really low, uh, getting your hands in, getting your face in, because mm-hmm. it's not a natural thing for human beings to put their face in the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the best lessons I learned about swim teaching and swim uh, coaching was my actual first sports job was working as a swimming teacher when I was studying and I was teaching three-year-olds how to swim, two and three-year-olds how to swim. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you see the raw emotion. They've not learned to modulate these emotions. What comes out is what they say uh, is what they're thinking. They'll scream, they'll kick, They'll be ab- absolutely terrified sometimes, uh, and and it's no different for adults. Those same emotions are going on inside some people's heads. They've just learned to modulate them more effectively. So it's recognizing that and taking someone in gradually and say being there to to support and say it's going to be all right, uh, and letting people find their comfort zone at a pace that works for them. I think is the best way. Uh, and then it becomes an absolute joy. Once they start yeah, doing the, those more often and start seeing the octopuses under the water, isn't it? it oh. that's, <laughs> I have to yeah, mention or, octopus. <laughs> oh, the octopus was so cool, wasn't it? Yeah, it's just fantastic. Uh, and and this was the, this was after the movie, remember? The, the, about the, the guy who was diving with the octopus. Yeah, you're you're to blame for Netflix for me because I signed up to Netflix just so I could watch uh, that film. Just because of that? Oh no! Yeah, yeah. The, the problem is the problem is you won't find better movie than this on Netflix. That's a, this is the top of the list probably. Mm-hmm. But it, it was just that chat we had in the gym that day. It reminded me I was on the Maldives a few years ago and actually being down. Uh, swimming in the ocean, in the Indian Ocean, and seeing the octopus uh, mm-hmm. watching me. And he was actually in a little hole looking up, and you could see the octopus's eyes just staring, and I'm staring back. And then he came out for a little look. I think, I don't know if it was a he or a she. Uh, <laughs> and I actually, I think I cried about four times in the Maldives. I saw creatures that I've never uh, seen before. Mm-hmm. little microcultures. It's like little groups of fish and then you hear a noise in the water and what's that? And poke your head up and there's a dolphin. And uh, then you, you see, oh, they're not uh, they're not tuna. They're like big fish like tuna as well. I've seen them swimming about. And then a turtle appears. And then think, well, if I hadn't started swimming in the sea, I wouldn't see all these beautiful things. And, mm-hmm. and whilst it's a little bit different in Portobello or, or, or Wardy, 
uh, I think, was it last year or two years ago, uh, my partner Rosemary, our friend Izzy and I both came, came out of that water with probably mild hypothermia. But what, what it was was that uh, the water was really clear one day, uh, and I don't know if it was the currents, and there was literally tens of thousands of starfish along the, the, the oh, bottom wow. of... Uh, and then there's crabs crawling over the starfish and uh, we just kept on diving down and we didn't get out for ages. It was just way too long watching all these wonderful creatures. Uh, and that's what makes open water swimming wonderful for me. It, it, it's seeing the, a guillemot or it's seeing the duck flying over your head. Uh, and it's actually, for me, it's a lot more peaceful than the swimming pool where you've got people shouting, people blowing whistles, uh, it, it, it's just a completely new and free world without constraints, that, uh, and I love that. That's that's a great thing about you. You can you can notice those those little things, and you can kind of. I was I was checking also your bleep recently. You know the the, the places where you're putting your your photos, and that's incredible. Mm -hmm. You know because from one side you've got this guy who is really into his coaching and knows a lot about this and, and talks about. And on the other hand, you've got the guy who takes really cool pictures and, and you've got kind of nice, good stories about, about the nature. It's mostly you do nature, isn't it, at this moment? Uh, it's just, well, we're in a, a funny world at the moment as well. So there, mm -hmm. there's my world's kind of small. But yes, yes, it is nature, but... When, when I lived down in Manchester, for example, I, I used to go to the Whitworth Gallery a lot. So it's a contemporary gallery in Manchester. Uh, and they used to have uh, workshops, photography workshops, but it's art photography. So, mm -hmm. so here's me engaging with uh, art academics who are, are using photography as a medium to communicate uh, thoughts, feelings, emotions. Uh, and framing things and framing e existence in, in multiple different ways. And I think that's what we do in, in coaching as well. We're continually looking at things, interpreting things, uh, trying to understand other people's worlds. And that's exactly what art photographers are trying to do. They're interpreting the world in, in a different way, whether it's using mm -hmm. narratives so telling a story through one image, through framing an image and trying to get a message over to others, or it may be delving down into their inner thoughts, their deepest, most inner thoughts and trying to represent that with an image. So I wouldn't say that that's detached from my coaching. It, it augments, so it adds to my understanding of the world, how people think, uh, and it just gives me a different perspective to understand humanity. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't say detached. It's just it's just really mm. interesting way of, mm. of looking on the coaching or looking at the humanity on the from the different aspect because you don't see this in different coaches. You know, like it's we we, we there's a, something we mentioned some time ago as well about uh, everything in the world being very going very deep and not really seeing other things around. Like if you read any, any book about the marketing, they will always tell you to find the niche and stay with it. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, I never, never believe in this. I always thought it's nice to do different things, 
but I never could find anyone who would kind of live this way. And, and you seems to be like a person who does it all the time. Yeah, well, David Epstein wrote that generalist uh, book exactly mm-hmm. on, on people like me that stand out from challenging the status quo and being that generalist. So, so there's a perception that uh, specialists uh, are, are, are better at particular jobs mm-hmm. uh, and that we should focus our careers to being those specialists. Uh, and uh, I think there's evidence to say that that works in the short term. But in a world like today where things are changing rapidly, we need to be agile, we need to be creative, we need to find different ways to solve problems then being that generalist who can engage with multiple different people and solve problems in multiple different ways can give you a competitive advantage. And I use that word can very carefully because in my world, in the academic world, we're set up as specialists. So mm-hmm. so my way of thinking is quite difficult to get published. Okay. It's described sometimes as messy and incoherent or needs more careful framing. Mm. Uh, And my suggestion is, well, uh, life is like the internal commentary inside our our minds. So the way we think isn't like you would read in a book. Uh, One minute you're uh, thinking about something really deep. Next minute, you're thinking about having a cup of tea. Uh, next minute, the doorbell goes. So, so there's all this internal chaos going on in the brain. And only when we get it down on paper does it become more coherent. So I, I, I think that that's just the way the world is. It, it's messy. It's incoherent. It's problematic. And what humans like is to make things as simple as possible to... Take, make more sense of that muddled world. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and I maybe come from it from the other angle is I, I, I like embracing chaos. I, I like that muddle, but it still comes with a really deep, deep knowledge of the indiv- individual components of that world as well. So it, it's not an easy option. It's a, a slow burn. It takes a long time to develop the skills and experience to operate effectively as a generalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I need to be able to uh, converse with psychiatrists, biomechanists, performance analysis uh, specialists, uh, physiotherapists, who also have their expertise is constructed in a particular type of way. And I've got to make sense of them and try and get inside their heads and understand how they're thinking too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that means understanding them, it under, means understanding different perspectives and that uh, specialist way of thinking as well. So it may mean knowing a little bit about what everyone does mm-hmm. so that I can work with them more effectively. I, yes, that's 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 what's I think is most important. Like in my my case, I think this is super important to be able to have a little bit of language with all the other specialists, but to be able to be the person who pulls everything together and and give the the most important things to your athletes. 
mm. which, which you kind of you already get them in your head, you transfer them somehow so they can understand uh, much much clearer, if, mm. you, if you wish. Yeah, and I, I can understand. It, it must be weird. Or, or t- what? Tell me how you feel with someone like me coming into your gym and and being the coach of me. How, how does that feel for you? Mm. I look, I, I look at you at the, as a challenge, you know, and <laughs> and, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm challenging. But then, but most of the, but it wouldn't be interesting if if would if would if this process what was easy, you know, you wouldn't need me, and I I love seeing a change in you, seeing that you are getting better and you start understanding your body a little bit from the different perspective. And what's most important, uh, what's, what's amazing about you, it's just you you do things which i pointing you at. You know, like I'm saying, Andy, you should be, let's say, working on your arm flexibility or shoulder flexibility, and you do this for seven days a, a week, probably. And you're coming back uh, and well, you're... Not that much. <laughs> but but, mm. but you're, making, you're making progress. And, and that's where... You probably can tell the same that uh, as a coach, the biggest reward is to seeing taking your athlete from A to B, and then the, the person is actually getting better. This that, this is where I get my kick from. Mm. Uh, and if and, and it's never it cannot be money. Obviously, money is there involved. This is my job, but in the same time, this is the last thing uh, on the on the ladder. So the first thing mm. is to get you get you better, basically. That's... Yeah, but the key thing there for both of us is relationship. Do we get on? Mm-hmm. Do we have a laugh? Do we respect each other? Uh, and uh, I think we do. Uh, uh, and yeah. then other things come after that. So you're learning about the things I need. So you know that I'm a really slow learner. I've not. I, I can't send signals from my brain to my arms and legs very quickly, and it takes a while to learn new movements. Uh, uh, and, and that must be quite, or it is quite difficult to coach because I coach people like that too. Uh, but then you are, you start to understand more about uh, the way people learn as well. So lots, lots of coaches tend to have been really good at their sport and don't necessarily appreciate uh that there's people like me who just don't get it sometimes and it's really difficult. It's a, a challenge. It's a fight. It's frustrating. It's upsetting. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes not to be able to do things. So but, but, I'm com- but you did say about that being difficult, you know, I, I like it. You know, I, I think if you want to be a good coach, you need to like a difficult cases because this is where you, for me, this is the biggest learning. This is where, mm-hmm. as, you, as, you, as you said, I, I'm learning about that not everyone is maybe... I'm not gifted. I'm beyond... Like, I'm, I'm not there. But there are some things which comes to me very easy in terms of, like, learning the new movements. But mm-hmm. then seeing you and, and, and seeing how you might struggle. And, and this asked me to, to generate new ideas, how to get you some new ideas into your head and how to how to teach you this 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 thing and i'm sure i'm gonna be able to use it uh in the future with other people so it's great to have a uh, hard clients i'm I'm a wish for hard clients but also clients who who can work hard and who 
who do what I kind of tell them. If it's, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's key. And I, I've gone to Pilates and didn't really like it. And it, it's just too tough for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it, I think it's come to the stage for me that, uh, no, I need regular one-to-one support to get to a point where I'm confident. Uh, so although you're speaking to me about the uh, to me as an expert coach, I'm also a client and I'm also someone who does sport who's not naturally talented talented at it and I, I think uh, that's advantageous to me as a coach being like that because I've got to work damn hard at everything I do so as a triathlete I'm not naturally talented uh, but I work damn hard at what I do I put everything into it sometimes too much into it so uh, I, I I think that's quite a good way sometimes to be as a coach to realize the work that goes in to being good at what you do, but Mm -hmm. realizing sometimes it's a struggle too. And what happens when you work too hard? If you work too hard, the body breaks down pretty damn quickly. (laughs) And then you can't work hard anymore because you're stuck on the sofa with an injury or something. Yeah, that's, I I think you... You love your bike, you love your Zwift, from what I know. And I, I think this kind of, this, this, this game makes you pushing yourself too hard uh, sometimes. And, and I'm sure, and I'm seeing this in other people as well, that it's, there is something about this, this, this Zwift that makes people go beyond their limits a lot. D- d- don't you feel that sometimes? Uh <laughs> Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think uh, it's a good? Do you think it's a good thing? Is it? Uh, I think people push very hard on the likes of Swift, and I can only speak for myself because I only experience being me. Uh, what I don't have is uh, well, I I live uh, New Haven, so it's like forty minutes out of town. And 40 minutes back before I can train with any intensity on the bike. Mm-hmm. So, so that hour and a half uh, of shouting at motorists uh, and stopping at traffic lights and breathing in fumes disappears. Uh, so, so the reality is I'm probably less fatigued at the end of the week and stronger on the bike than I've ever been in years because of that junk mileage. It, it tends to be more focused. Okay. It's more focused. It's very hard, uh, but there's less junk, so the quality is still there. Mm-hmm. And then for the, for those who don't, what what do you call the junk miles? Because that's a kind of a thing which been thrown then a lot of times. Talking, don't do the junk junk miles. But what's what's junk junk miles? Oh, it's a really good question. I, I think that it's where they're, they're, they're not contributing to the uh, training response. It, it's kind of, oh, how, how, how do I say it? it? It is being in traffic and being stuck at traffic lights and, and all these sorts of things without a purpose. So you're doing it for, to get from A to B. Uh, I, I think that doing these long rides and going down the borders and things that can can be very advantageous. Now, I wouldn't classify that as junk miles because there's a purpose. 
mm-hmm. the purpose of me getting from, say, New Haven uh, to Musselboro is to do it as quickly as possible to so I can start training. Start training, okay. But is is it not like I'm, I'm looking at the at increasing the volume, for example? Wouldn't wouldn't this junk mice increase your volume somehow, and and add it to your like overall effect over the week, or it doesn't work this way? Uh, it depends. I think it depends how high your training load is. So if your training load's high enough, and then you you're having to do these additional miles on top of that just to start training, then. I, I don't think they're particularly useful. Uh-huh. Uh, but if your life is someone who uh, thinks, right, uh, I'm going to commute to work uh, uh, and that's the time in the day I've got to do my exercise, I, I think that's got a real training purpose to it. It is getting the miles in the legs, but they're not excess miles in the legs. Mm-hmm. So, so how do if, if when you train yourself, uh, because you've got the pro athlete who you train and you know how to, to train pro athlete, uh, and you train yourself, I, I assume it's like you are your own trainer, or do you have a, a, a triathlon trainer or endurance trainer? No, uh, I, I train myself. Uh, so you are like, so can you consider? Would you say that you are like an amateur? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, typical mid pack age grouper uh-huh. and what's the so what's you what are the biggest differences between you two like between the training being a pro and 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 like you train is it uh, everything for me is about enjoyment now i, I i've not okay. got so so i train to enjoy it's maybe not like when i was a bit younger where it was really quite performance focused and i am driven as an individual so i always want to do my best Mm-hmm. But it's purely about enjoyment. I train doing things that I like doing. And as long as I continue to maintain my fitness at my age or get a little bit faster, then I'm I'm quite happy. It's not very systematic, but like many people, I've got a challenging job. Mm-hmm. Uh, I need to fit training in when I can. Uh, before lockdown, my run might be running from Haymarket home. So I would get off the train with my rucksack on my back uh, and run from Haymarket along the cycle path, uh, running at tempo. So that would be my tempo run. So there's still a specific purpose, but I'm fitting it in to a time when I can do it. Uh-huh. So enjoyment is the, the biggest driver. And is if you are a pro, I like... Shouldn't you enjoy that as well? I know it's the people's job, uh, but in the same time, how much do yeah. you enjoy? Uh, I, I think it's the same as anything, Lezek, that uh, sometimes we enjoy what we do, sometimes we don't. And it's the same. Professionals aren't any different to anyone else. They just, My perception is they tend just to be better at it than us and okay. do spend more time doing it because they're, they're good enough. And that ability to work that bit harder is because there's a deeper belief so if you're that person who's uh believes you can win a race mm-hmm. or you're coming in to take on other uh, top athletes I, I think it's easier to find the motivation and the reward for putting that effort in to bring you up to the next level whereas if you're a, a mid mid uh packer or a beginner 
finishing 250th or 240th doesn't really matter on the scale of things. It's yeah. that, that internal push, that internal drive wanting to do your best that comes into it. But sometimes I don't think there's that extra pull just to find that extra 1% to beat some people because uh-huh. a few places doesn't make that much different. Whereas the top athletes will be like gladiators wanting to beat each other. Uh, I think that's where uh, a bit of a difference in the the mindset comes, the belief that they can win or the belief that they can do really well or a fear of uh, a greater fear of failure. No one gives a a stuff if I fail or have a a rubbish race. But if you're all over Instagram or you've got sponsors, then other people care. So so the fear Mm -hmm. of failure is also greater. So that's the difference. Okay. And what's, what's for you now in next couple of months? Do you've got any, anything you're looking for in terms of racing or any big goals? Along uh, the line? No, I, I probably just want to uh, do uh, a 10 mile time trial on Zwift in about 24 and a half minutes. Uh, <laughs> it, like many people, it's... We're str- I'm struggling to see the light at the end of the tunnel sometimes just now. So to have these personal goals to, to do things when uh, parts of my world have fallen in a little bit. So I worked for mm-hmm. two or three years to build relationships over in Kenya and to get over to uh, the Rift Valley to work with athletes up in a place called Eten, where some of the best runners in the world are, and to take three years to, to get there and then have the rug pulled away from under your feet. It's kind of, ah. Oh. Uh, so, so I think like everyone else, there's, there's challenges for me. Some of my motivations have gone down in the last six months. Things I've worked so hard for ha- have disappeared. Mm-hmm. Uh, and life's pretty difficult at the moment. So it's balancing these things and just going out and enjoying training when I can. Uh-huh. So, and yeah. so there's not a deep goal apart from uh, being it. I suppose the fear for me is not being able to do it anymore. That that's why I'm paying you. I'm terrified that I, <laughs> I, I can't do what I do anymore. Uh, it, 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 that's the motivator. That I love what I do. I love training. I love being out on the bike. I love swimming, uh, and the thought of not being able to do that is really scary. And, and that's why I train now, just, just for fun. And, and that's, that's something which, which I've been always struggle because when I, when I see people like you and me and Joanna who loves, loves training and going out and doing things, it's kind of easy because that's what we do. And I'm always trying to find a way how to engage people who don't really like doing this did you find any golden ticket into those people's minds? How to, let's say, sell them this this idea that it's the fitness and moving and, and being active is good for you? Or this or it just comes with the with the mindset from very young age and then you cannot change this? No, I think you definitely can change it, Isaac. Many of the fears for uh, beginners or those who are not physically active. A is fear of doing things. Uh, mm-hmm. B, it, it's perception. So you see uh, someone like you or Joanna who are obviously uh, fitness professionals. 
that can be intimidating for some people. Uh, and it, it, for me, it's thinking about that one step at a time. So getting off the sofa and walking to the uh, supermarket for 10 minutes may be the first step for some people because they will get in the car and drive and park outside the supermarket and, and, and just walk in. So, so the first step is that five minute walk rather than the uh, two minute drive or uh, finding a social activity with other people that involves uh, physical activity without even realizing that it's physical, physical activity. Uh, so I did a lecture a couple of years ago with some student nurses mm -hmm. and I was to teach them about the physiology of physical activity. Uh, and looking at the audience who I was lecturing to, many weren't physically active. I, I would say because of the demographic in nursing, there tends to be less physical activity, uh, mm -hmm. quite high body mass index, uh, not great eating ab habits, working in wards and things. So uh, mm -hmm. nurses aren't necessarily the most physically active in the world and they suffer many risk factors of uh, sedentary behavior and so on mm -hmm. that the rest of the population do as well. So so my way to deliver that lecture was, right, everyone, we're going to uh, get off our bums. We're going to walk around the, the loch okay. in uh, Stirling. So we've got a really beautiful area in, in Stirling on the campus with two lochs. We've got ducks and wildlife, even birds of prey and stuff. So, uh -huh. right. So the task is to speak to someone that you've never spoken to before, walk around the loch. I've got about 100 nurses coming behind me. I want you to speak to them about people who have uh, been affected in your family, who have suffered through uh, poor health as a result of physical activity. Uh, and then I just want you to get to know each other too. Uh, and I came back and I said, sat everyone down and looked at my fancy Garmin and said, right, I've done uh, four and a half thousand steps just in that walk. So have you lot. <laughs> when was the last time you did that? And then mm -hmm. tell me the experiences of uh, that walk. And some were saying, oh, I didn't even know that part of the campus existed or, or that looks really beautiful and I've never been there before. Or I met someone from another town and, and we got chatting and that was really nice and it's all oh, right so so we've just spent half an hour 40 minutes doing physical activity without you even realizing you've done it and we've learned wow. as a result and, and these are the types of conversations you guys need to be thinking about uh the fears of patients or in uh health now we're talking about using physical activity as medicine mm-hmm what are, what are the barriers to prescribing that medicine? I said, there was lots of barriers in that room of the nurses scared of doing it. Or uh, when they hear, uh, I've gone out and ran, uh, well, I've got a, a, an injury just now, but go out and run 20, 30, 40 kilometers at the weekend. Or once I ran back from Peebles to Edinburgh, which was like a marathon. And it's, yeah. oh my God, how can you do that? That's amazing. And oh, uh, 
so it's kind of out of the ordinary what I do to many people and I'm sure it's out of the ordinary what you do as well and oh my god I could never do that and yeah and that's that's what you said like this is the trap which I which I found some time ago that you know more we try to impress others because we're thinking that doing those these crazy things like I have to finish Iron Man because otherwise I'm not going to be portrayed as a good trainer or I have to do this and this and this. And suddenly you, you're creating this persona where people start looking at you as someone who does these crazy, crazy things, but it doesn't really make them do things. And the mm. way you did it with the nurses is much better because you just, you've got your goal. You wanted to put them into some activity, but you didn't say we're going to race now and the first one back here will, will get the lollipop. <laughs> But you, you make them, this, this was nice. This, I like this way. Yeah, uh, and I, I think that, that comes from my own life journey as well. So I was overweight as a kid, not very good at sport and stuff. And sometimes the person not to be picked in the class uh, uh, for teams, which is horrible. Uh, but for me, it, it brought inner strength, the will to do even better at it. I would say for the majority of others who don't enjoy doing the sort of sport at school it doesn't drive them to do even more when they leave school it drives them to stay away from it from the for the rest of their lives i i was just different i discovered the bike and and loved mm-hmm. driving a bike and had some wonderful life experiences through that but it's not the same for everyone and it's recognizing that fat ginger side of me who who was last in every single race uh, that gave me my inner strength to uh, push sometimes too hard, sometimes not helpful, that drive to do things. But we've got to recognize not everyone's the same as ourselves. That's, that's fantastic. Andy, I, I think we can, we can finish on this. We're just reaching an hour. I'm not going mm-hmm. to keep you longer. Uh, thank you very much for, for joining. Uh, I've learned a lot about you and i i think it's we not even touch all the topics we want there will be more topics so i'm, I'm hopefully you will be at some point willing to meet me again uh, mm-hmm. and then we'll be able to to use our trainings for trainings not for chatting <laughs> that's not gonna happen let's no. face it it's not gonna happen <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're you're right. You're right. I, I've just just got the Neil Thompson. Do you remember Neil Thompson? I remember Neil. I, I played rugby with Neil. Was that the Neil? Played in goals as well. A bit of a goalie. He just said that he he went to school with you, and and he's interesting listening to to you. So uh, yeah, Neil uh, is from Pinky. Uh, okay, I don't know. Maybe uh, Neil, are you from Pinky? <laughs> He's from uh, the other side of town. I know he was from the other side of town yeah, in Musselburgh. So, so can can we can we say if if people have some questions to you, uh, can they ask you these questions under this post? So it won't, it's going to be on Facebook. So then I will kind of I will tag you in, and if you if you if you are willing to answer them, can can we do this way? Mm-hmm. If you, so if you guys if you got any question to to Andy about the training or about photography or about what else to oh swifting if you want to do some swifting with andy what else coffee coffee, coffee. Um, uh, uh, yeah. oh, oh you we didn't touch the oh my god we didn't talk about coffee 
No, but I, I believe that uh, talking with you about the coffee, it's 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 a long topic. I remember when I mentioned that my coffee machine and you've been like, oh, what you've got? And you said to me that you've got like eight different machines. I've not got eight. I've got eight different bikes. I've only got uh, two coffee machines. Only two. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, what's what's the best place for people to uh, to find you? Oh, it's just Google me. It's easy. Just Facebook is absolutely fine. It's okay. the best place. Yeah. And do you still take clients, or you you you're not uh, taking any clients at this moment? Uh, unless they've got the possibility of being world champion, or can give me an offer that I can't refuse. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't I don't need any clients unless uh, they're going to make me rich or uh and i'm not in it for the money and uh or unless they've got a chance of winning at kona or something like that right so it's quite high guys but if you are one of those guys who wants to reach the top there we go there's yeah, so waiting, I, waiting for you either absolutely loaded and willing to shell it out on me or ability to be the best in the world <laughs> that's how open i am <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, uh, it, it was fantastic chatting to you. Uh, sure. Take care. Bye. See you later. <laughs>